0: Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brulé. Coming up on today's program here at Dufourstrasse 90 in Zurich, Emily Isohauer is here, also Fabian Kinselman. They've both got some views on the weekend, but Emily, we're going to start with you. Main story for the weekend.
1: A continuing one. So Germany yesterday shut down its last um, three nuclear reactors, while the rest of the world seems to be doubling down on nuclear energy, including Finland, that just today will open its biggest ever reactor.
0: So we'll get a little bit of a Finnish view and we'll have a little bit of a, a view from Germany as well, at least. Precisely,
1: and what might be the different discourse, discourses taking place in uh, Germany and the rest of the world on
0: this topic. Very good. Also, our Editor-in-Chief Andrew Duck will bring us the latest view from London, and we'll get the latest from the Balkans.
2: I'm Guy Lorna Monocle's man in the Balkans, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of all the latest happenings in the region, from shenanigans over Serbian arms sales through to penalties for fascism in Croatia and Slovenia's attempts to get its airport to take flight. Plus, we'll head to Lisbon to talk to
0: David Dinnis at Expresso Newspaper. It's the 16th of April, 2023. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday.
3: Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brûlée.
0: Good morning from Zurich, a uh, very rainy uh, Zurich. Uh, as, as Emma Nelson was saying just uh, in the pre-intro to this, uh, it was uh, supposed to be, well, it is the start of, of body season, bathing season in some places. I'm not sure who's going to venture into the lake. Uh, as I said at the start of this, uh, we have uh, Fabian Kinselman here, uh, international correspondent at the Handelszeitung, uh, and Emily Isahau, also program coordinator for peace mediation at ETH uh, here in Zurich. Good morning uh, to both of you. Very nice to see you here.
3: Good morning, Tyler. Good to see you. Uh,
0: maybe uh, just Fabian, uh, mean, just uh, tell me. Uh, let's maybe focus on on body season. Uh, did you did you jump into the lake yesterday? Have you jumped in the lake this season yet?
3: Yes, I have. But not here. I, I did it in Denmark.
0: Okay. Well, that's that's I mean that's, that sort of counts as well. Maybe even slightly more brave than actually jumping into Lake Zurich. Does it
3: count when I've just been in there for like five seconds?
0: Yeah, it's fine. It completely counts. Uh, absolutely. Uh, you're, you're laughing over there in the background, Emily. And good morning, by the way.
1: Uh, good morning. And I, I know as a Finn, I should say yes, absolutely. Every morning I wake up and, and take a dip in the Lake of Zurich. But I haven't, but I was just in Nairobi last week and I did uh, swim there.
0: Well, yeah, but count. that's in a swimming pool or... Precisely.
1: Yeah, so it doesn't and, really and, count in Nairobi.
0: <laughs> no, it, it, it is kind of odd as well because uh, I was you know, driving in this morning and I was thinking, oh my goodness, like this should be a time of year here where your people are excited mid-April, that sort of sense that summer's coming. No sense that summer's coming at all.
1: Well, and absolutely. I just yesterday got a reminder from my phone of a picture from uh, last year, this exact day last year, and it was, there were flowers out, it was sunny, it was 24 degrees, I was sunbathing by the lake, so quite the contrast with this year. But hopefully that means that the summer will be warm. We'll find out tomorrow at the Sexaluta Celebration in Zurich, as they burn the bog, uh,
0: whether the uh, summer will be long or not. Okay, I'm going to give you, both of you the assignment. So this is, it's a it's a holiday, it's a half day City holiday or or cantonal holiday as well, so it's not celebrated across uh, all of Switzerland. Who wants to define in sixty seconds or less what Sexiloyten is? <laughs> who's who's going to take the challenge?
3: <gasps> you are uh, asking I, two foreigners. I know, That's I know.
0: Exactly. I've got a German and a Finn here, but anyway, okay. You go, Emily. You go for it. So historically, it has something to do with the start of I think
1: summer working hours, and it's related to the guilds and the various guilds that you exist in um, uh, Zurich. But the most famous bit is that they, there's a big effigy uh, of winter a snowman that they burn and the length it takes or the period between them lighting it on fire and the head exploding will determine according to superstitions how uh, long and and it is until the summer and i think the shortest it's ever taken is around five minutes and the longest i think more than an hour um so we'll see it looks a bit rainy tomorrow so you might Take a while, um, so that would imply that the summer won't be super warm.
0: Yeah, and then of course tomorrow morning there is, and then actually you noticed actually all weekend there was there was a lot of a lot of dress. There is a lot of dress up right now because as you said, all of the guilds uh, from across the city. Uh, there's much pageantry uh, right now. There's much many wigs, lots of pantaloons as well. And there's a big
1: parade, so if if anyone happens to be in Zurich, it's it's worth a visit. I, I think everyone dressed up in their outfits and and the parading across the city. Um, um, so it's fun to see
3: and then they are riding around the book um and after it explodes it's it's getting even more fun because then the children can come in and like barbecue sausages in the uh,
0: off the head of the exploded snow, <laughs> snowman as well which is which is quite something um andrew tuck uh, is on the line uh, our editor-in-chief is in london i believe he's in london Andrew, you are in london this morning good morning
4: i'm definitely here and uh you sound pretty fresh actually after a night of uh, karaoke i i i thought i was going to hear a growlier voice this morning okay no
0: not not so bad we'll kind of we'll come back to that in a moment i'm not changing tracks but w- when, when you hear about this this half day celebration uh with of course as you know many horsemen riding around and then this very very large snowman i think his head is packed with fireworks etc and then this thing it sort of explodes um not all over the crowds uh but uh, how does that sound to you? Do, you do you want to buy a plane ticket do do you think it's something Zurich should be marketing for itself?
4: I don't know. Explo- exploding Santas is, is, uh, is, is... I'm not quite sure if it's international allure. I'm sure it's fun when you're there, though. I, it's, well, it's not Exploding sand. It's a, it's, it's a snowman. It's a
0: snowman. But I mean, oh
4: so... <laughs> Well, maybe they can add a Santa as well for good effect.
0: They, they could. And what's, uh, well, I, I we can say what's catching your uh, eye uh, in, in London uh, this morning, uh, as, as we were saying at the start of the show as well. It's kind of amazing that this is, it's five years of uh, of, of Dufourstrasse.
4: No, how, how amazing. And uh, w- w- I think for anybody who who knows Monocle, I would encourage them to go because I think it is one of the, the kind of best kind of, physical iterations of what the brand stands for. So bookshop, cafe, which is always bustling. Just amazingly put together by uh, David Marquardt from Mac Architects. I don't know. It's, it's one of those places that I think even when when staff rocked up on the first days, were like, "Oh God, do, do we work for this company? This is this is pretty impressive." So yeah. So congratulations. It's been a, an amazing five years.
0: Yeah, and hopefully we'll be uh, we'll be seeing uh, you up up here soon. But maybe we should just focus very quickly uh, and maybe do a little bit of housekeeping at the top of the program. Uh, you're heading to Milan. I'm heading to Milan. Uh, it is the start of uh, Salone uh, la Mobile this week. Uh, in in many ways, a lot of it gets underway uh, as of today. It sort of seems that every year it sort of creeps a day earlier. Uh, but we're going to be taking a, a, to the stage. Uh, a, 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 I, I think it's a larger stage than it's been in the past, Andrew, because you and I have been doing a special performance for the past few years as Salones reopened at a puppet theater uh, for uh, for the Swiss appliance brand, Fautzu. Uh
4: Yes, but we have a, a, a change of venue. We do love our puppet theater and uh, it was a theatre that looks just like a normal, regular theatre, but it's scaled down to uh, a, a very small, intimate space. But we have a, a bigger space this year, and we're doing talks on two nights, so uh, on on Tuesday and Wednesday, and that's followed by a, a reception and drinks, uh, which go on, I believe, till ten o'clock both nights. But we have some amazing people. We have uh, on the Tuesday we have Carlos um coming. We have uh, Caroline Boss, the the architect. Just really cool people up on stage. We're going to be talking about lots of things. We're going to be talking about circular economy, what happens in the furniture industry next, uh, the pressure to improve pro- production and uh, the way things are done so that we're, we're, we're a bit more gentle on the environment. So it's going to be an, a fascinating time to be there. And we love being at Saloni because it's, it's it's just such a strange thing that the city is so alive you do not have to make an appointment to see everyone, because everyone just pops up in front of you at some point. Indeed,
0: and and uh, of course, we, there's a fantastic event uh, Monday night, uh, which is, uh, you know, and, and it, it's sort of by invitation, but as you said, just everybody sort of shows up, and it's very, it's very different, I think, from the fashion world because this there's not the sort of level of, of, of exclusivity there's not this sort of maybe this division that you sometimes get in the fashion world as you said the city just completely opens up and it's it's architects it's industrial designers it's journalists and then of course it's just the world of uh of, of whether it's hotel brands uh, who are in massive expansion and need to place a big bed order uh you know through to uh, it could be you know restaurant companies etc all, all in all in the city i was going to ask you though as, as you know we're going to be sort of of course spinning around uh, milan for for, for you know two two to three days, uh, anything on Andrew Tuck's shopping list aside from sort of a, an editorial shopping list, uh, as as you look around your place in London, thinking about your terrace in Palma, Andrew, uh, are, are you are you missing missing anything?
4: Well, that is that is it is, it is the terrible thing. It's like when you go to see a, an art show, you, you're meant to be there to appreciate the art, and you wonder whether the the, the, the size of the canvas would fit into your house. But, and I think the same happens when you're in Milan. You can't help but eye up some of the things I'm pretty much there I have a very small small kind of amount of square footage where I live so I don't think I can squeeze many more things in but there's always something to cover and and it's just great to see what brands are doing and designers are doing so I'm sure there'll be a little bit of a shopping list scribbled on the back of a notebook at some point uh, and we'll come back to uh,
0: two to other uh, events that we have uh, coming up maybe just at, at the end of this but uh, I just wanted to, to open it up uh, of course to uh, flipping open um, the front pages uh, You know, wh- whether we're looking at the Handelszeitung Zeitung uh, Fabian uh, or we're looking at uh, Helsingin Sonomat or, or anything else out of uh, uh, Finland or Switzerland Emily but uh, who, who wants to start I mean I, I, going into the program we were talking about of course uh, the nuclear story and it, of course was part of uh, our headlines with Emma as well here we have you know, a the last uh nuclear facility being shuttered uh permanently in Germany. And then here's Finland with a, a much delayed, but nevertheless, its opening. And it's not that it's sort of an apologetic opening that, mm-hmm. oh, this is, you know, uh of course it's been a long time running, but okay, the taxpayers are paying for it. We're gonna let this run for 10 years. We 10 years, we have a stated policy uh, that Finland, of course, rode to of course zero. And at the same time, that a full belief in nuclear energy. Absolutely. It's quite symbolic,
1: isn't it, that in one country they're phasing out completely. Uh, Germany closing its uh, three remaining reactors yesterday. And Finland, as you mentioned, opening finally 14 years later with, I believe, quadrupled costs. Um, The fourth um, reactor or fifth reactor in the country being fully operational later today. They now say that it's even one day early. It was meant to open tomorrow, but again, it's 14 years too late. But it's not just Finland if you look at france uh, macron has uh, announced the building of 14 new reactors by 2050 uh, president biden has announced uh, lots of investment in new technologies when it comes to kind of new generation smaller nuclear reactors poland uk the list goes on and on and even japan where um you very famously had the fukushima incident is reopening some of its nuclear power plants so completely different strategies in germany and um finland and the rest of the world and i've uh, been reading uh, articles in the NZZ in Finnish media and they all seem to be pointing into this being more of an ideological issue in Germany where for instance the Green Party um, some of its founding members are former anti-nuclear power activists and it's very much at the core of their um, kind of message whereas um, in in other countries including in Finland you have Green Party MPs who are in favor of nuclear energy as a transitional source of energy as they're trying to make Finland completely carbon Neutral by 2030. So again, differences of strategy um, and discussion, and I believe in Germany as well, um, the entered said um, article seems to be pointing in this direction. Discussion is focused on safety rather than climate when it comes to nuclear energy, and Chernobyl, Fukushima being two key incidences that push uh, Merkel's government as well to. Um, come up with a phasing out plan. Um, by last year that was then extended until April 15th. So again, completely different strategies and it will be interesting to see where Germany will go from here. Some of the polls that have been coming out of Germany is that there's actually increasing support for nuclear energy in Germany even if there is a phasing out plan. I see it unlikely that Germany would go back to nuclear energy in the future, um, but in terms of its popularity, it seems to be going on.
0: Now, listeners, this is very exciting. Andrew, you're going to love this. So, Desi, uh, of course, who uh, is uh, one of our producers and uh, is running all of the audio here this morning. Also, she did a very good job, also running karaoke uh, last night as well. Uh, I don't think you know that Desi knew this when she booked Fabien to come on the program this morning. So, not only do we have someone who's a chief international correspondent uh, at a respected uh, economics title. She also grew up next to a nuclear power plant in Germany, but wait, she's got more skin in the game because her father was a doctor for the nuclear power plant as well. So I mean, we couldn't have booked a better German this morning for the show. So Fabienne, uh, the German uh, point of view on this, is it only you know ideological? Do we have a situation of course, where we have people at the top of government in Berlin Greens, uh, who have almost painted themselves into a corner a little bit?
3: Yeah, it definitely has a strong ideological component. Definitely. Um, most, like the, the Green Party grew so much stronger within the past decades. Also, like lots of Germans grew up with like, there were like books, there were novels in Germany, um, very famous, Die Wolke, The Cloud, um, about like, it's like the, the base of the book is like a scenario where like a nuclear power plant in and um, where you have like a catastrophe around a nuclear power plant in Germany, so that's heavily influenced by that. But we should not forget that Merkel's government, and she's not green at all, was the one deciding to phase out the coal. Um, I also don't think, as you said, um, Emily, that uh, we're that Germany will go back at some point to nuclear um, power. But <clears throat> of course, there are like two things um, to to keep in mind. Like one thing is what. What like lots of Germans are also saying, like especially the Green Party, is like we would not have this energy transformation we've seen within the past years without the decision to phase out nuclear power plants. And the other thing is, of course, as long as Germany is the exception, they could always rely on other countries. so they could and this this will eventually happen, especially like next winter when we are having the gas shortage again, um that they will buy nuclear power um, electricity.
0: Andrew, uh, looking at this uh, from a a, a UK perspective as well, uh, and of course, you know, and it's it's interesting as well, um, you know, Fabian, you sort of talk about, of course, this legacy component. One part is, is, is nuclear plants, one, of course, was also. About also nuclear weapons too um, and that uh, it's very much you know just the notion of nuclear was tethered on on one side to geopolitical policy as much as geoeconomic policy um, as well Andrew of course we you know we can look back to probably when you were starting your career in journalism me as well um, and you know the protests and we can remember uh, of course people uh, of course tied defenses uh, around uh, RAF or, or and base is also used by the U.S. Air Force. So I said there was this narrative around obviously uh, security um, and and security in a geopolitical context, as much as uh, of course just the notion of of the threat of of nuclear. But I'm wondering how this what's happening in the UK right now in terms of a discussion. Where of course you know the UK, like many other countries, of course, you know, has been been part of of this current you know winter energy crisis as well.
4: Well, I don't think there's a huge protest movement uh, nationally around it. I think locally, often when there's a decision to extend the the life of a plant or to build new ones, then of course you see lots of campaigning at a local level and many people are not particularly keen on it. Although where you already have a plant... Often, many people there have jobs, as you, as you hinted at the top of, the sh- uh, of this section, where they, they, they're dependent on the power plant. So in those places, you see sometimes some people who are a bit more supportive of, of, of progress there. The UK's building two new nuclear plants. And I think that because of the what's happened in Ukraine with the, the threat to our, our gas and oil supplies, that people are much more aware of energy security. And it doesn't feel like there's a huge swell of a a backlash against it. So I think that that it will go ahead here without that kind of level of protest. You're seeing more protests around all sorts of things here. It's a a very fractious time in the UK in many ways. But it doesn't seem to be the hot button issue it was perhaps back when, as you said, Tyler, 20 years ago. Um, Andrew,
0: maybe just uh, keeping it in in the UK for for a moment... we're now sort of at that point, part of the news cycle, and I'm wondering, I haven't seen the, the Sundays um, out of uh, out of the UK this morning yet, um, but uh, there's a coronation coming up, uh, and, and now we're at this point, of course, where we're hearing the musical acts that are going to be uh, booked, uh, and of course, there's been a lot of discourse and dialogue about of course, this is the coronation uh, of, of King Charles. Uh, that you know, will it have also, um, a, a, yeah, let's say, a, a respectable element, a nod, uh, of course, to the environment, uh, to, to history, uh, in many ways as well. So, some opting out of maybe some of the pageantry that would normally be there, um, and at the same time, also uh, there seems to be sort of this growing excitement that, of course, uh, the coronation. Is is coming up. Um, so first thing is, uh, uh, what's what's catching your eye in the papers, um, and and do you see this as a bit of a of a reset moment because things have sort of gone quiet around the Harry book and all, all of these things. But uh, is it just a bit of a calm before the storm?
4: I don't know. I think. Th- it's not going to be as powerful an emotional or, or national moment i think as the as the the death of uh, queen elizabeth and, and the the funeral and the nature of, of coronations normally is, you know, that you, you don't have such high-ranking people flying in because much has been made of Biden not coming. But traditionally, that isn't what happened. It was always, for the, the, other than for, for, for one or two events, it, it would often be a prime minister who came in rather than the president. The second person in charge, the vice president, would come. So there will be dignitaries here. The, the, the parade will be extensive. The, 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 the King Charles will go through the streets in a carriage, but even there, they're being cautious about the signals they give off. And it's a, it's a much shorter route than was taken by Queen Elizabeth when she was crowned. But there does seem to be, uh, the papers are beginning to get behind it. And if the weather's good, and I'm sure there'll be an incredible turnout. But I think so much of it has been, as you said, about the fuss about you, is Harry coming? Is Harry not coming? Will Meghan come? And we now know that he's coming on his own. And the the stories in the papers are that he will attend and then leave. And he's not expected to be appearing on any balconies. But again, these are all very fast moving things in a very complicated family. So we'll see what happens. But I think it will be an important moment. But I just don't think it's going to have the emotional value that we saw uh, at the funeral.
0: Andrew, just a, we'll come back in a moment, uh, and and just uh, maybe sort of speaking of fast-moving things, we'll talk a little bit uh, about uh, up- upcoming travel schedule. But Fabian, I want to ask you, uh, when you look at Brand UK right now, obviously there was, of course, as, as Andrew was saying. The sense and the sort of rallying and the, and, and that the statesmanship that came, uh, of course, uh, with the Queen's funeral. Uh, now we have obviously a, a new a new moment, different relationship. Even how, I mean, of course, it's not a course story for Handelszeitung, Zeitung, uh, but from a I would say a, a nation brand perspective, uh, does this become an important moment for the UK when we look at it? Of course, uh, you know, politically, its relationship you know with Europe, a complicated relationship, but one which seems to be warming. Uh, or, or does a moment like this even matter?
3: Um, of course, it matters. I mean, million of people, if not billion, will follow the whole event through TV. But this doesn't cover the fact, and as you said, like the relationship with the EU is warming. But this doesn't cover the fact that um, that they have that they have to face many domestic problems. And this is like I think this is coming up more and more, and will come up more within the next months. I mean, the poorness, the level of poorness in in UK, the level of like inflation. All the economical consequences and health consequences for people is dramatic right now. Mm.
0: Uh, Emily, for, for you um, and from a Nordic view and also the Nordic country, of course, which does not have a monarchy um, as well, even though, the, again, um, you, you, of course, you know the, the Finns do like a, a bit of a, I wouldn't say a parade, but of course, on the national day, etc., you try to find excuses for people to put on some black tie and throw some medals on.
1: Absolutely. And I think the Finns, as, as much as we, in a way, kind of proud of not being a monarchy and, and being kind of the uh, only republic in the Nordic countries, um, well, apart from um, Iceland, And but we do love royals. I, I think we, a bit in a tongue-in-cheek comment, we always say, we don't need the Kardashians. We have the Nordic royals. And, you know, they are on the covers of kind of gossip magazines in Finland all the time so absolutely Um, and when it comes to the UK I think it'll be interesting to play out what I um, read with interest was um, the King's first visit to Germany I think he was received rather well in Germany surprisingly so I believe there was a quite a bit of buzz Um, but of course the other speaking about the coronation I think that speaks volumes is is I think the list of headlining artists and then many of them are in fact American not British I think many kind of key British artists opted out of uh, performing uh, at the coronation, which apparently, in my view, would speak volumes about kind of the perception domestically um, about the king and, and his popularity.
0: Uh, Andrew, an important question uh, for you, uh, who booked Katy Perry?
4: <laughs> it is strange, isn't it, who ends up on stage? And and, and there were many comments that the, the likes of Adele had apparently turned down the opportunity to appear. And I think that, the, that some, british stars don't really want to get involved in the coronation but i don't know the the, the bands are, are less important i think than the the, the the what what happens with that ceremony during the day and i think it is it's is fascinating because it does happen at a time when you know we're, we're we have strikes every single week we have so many questions about how the government can negotiate its way out of all of these these terrible industrial actions especially in our healthcare system and against that backdrop you have all this pomp and pageantry so you have to be very careful how you play it out but i think actually normally when these things come in the uk we saw it with you know skepticism about everything from the olympics to you know would what would People think of other royal events and actually on the day, Brits are very good at kind of getting out and, and making the most of uh, a day off because we get a national holiday for it and uh, making the most of the extended pub opening hours as well.
0: Andrew, we're going to go to the news um, in a moment with, uh, with Emma Nelson, uh, but just in the, the, the minute and a half uh, that we have before that, uh, aside from, uh, of course, uh, Milan, we're heading, uh, heading to New York. Excited about a book signing at Rockefeller Center next week?
4: Who couldn't? That's, how amazing is that? We're going to be at Sarah McNally's um, bookstore, McNally Jackson, in Rockefeller Center. A story we did it in the magazine because it's part of the Rockefeller Center trying to reestablish itself as a, a slightly cooler destination uh, in, a, in a bit of a, a retail wasteland sometimes. So that will be exciting. And then we, then we head to Asheville, Tyler, for, for uh, the, the, our weekend there, which I can't wait for either. And no, which is
0: amazing, so two weeks uh, from, from today, this uh, this very program, Andrew, uh, will be uh, anchoring the show uh, at a revised time as well, which is, uh, of course, going to be 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be doing this show with a live audience in in Asheville. I also thought what you would say when it's amazing that we're going to be in New York at Rockefeller Center, but also it's amazing as well to think that you know, here you have McNally Jackson, uh, and of course we should say that Sarah McNally is going to be speaking in Asheville as well. So all of these things uh, align, almost like how we booked Fabian and talking about nuclear power this morning. Um, it, that, that here at Rockefeller Center, that you've got a bookstore opening as well, a, an independent bookstore in these times.
4: Well, that's what's, what's incredible. Is news. Sarah McNally has been courted across New York because developers, uh, property owners, realize that bookstores do this magical thing. They, they bring together a diverse group of people what, what's seen as the right kind of people for a good neighborhood people who are intellectually engaged who who want to read who want to study who want to learn and it's a good badge for a neighborhood so she's done some amazing bookstores all, all the way down uh, uh, in the Soho right down in the South Seaport she, she's done an extraordinary job and how amazing that print the power of the book, the power of the printed word is, is being recognised as so pivotal for the, the health of a city. Andrew, uh, looking forward to seeing you uh, in
0: uh, Milan, of course, uh, in, well, about 48 hours from now. But of course, uh, our little tour of North America as well. Uh, Andrew Tuck, our editor-in-chief back in London, uh, just gone a little bit adrift of 10.30. Emma Nelson is back in London with the news headlines.
5: Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. Dozens of people have been killed in violent struggles between the army and the paramilitary in Sudan. Rival forces have been fighting over the presidential palace, state television building, army headquarters and Khartoum airport. Germany has shut down the last of its operating nuclear power plants. The reactors were closed by midnight last night. Berlin plans to generate fully renewable electricity by 2035. Meanwhile, in Finland, Europe's largest nuclear reactor will begin regular output today. Finland's much-delayed OL3 project is intended to boost energy security. And a French woman has found herself facing thousands of euros in legal claims after she bought two goats who wouldn't stop breeding. Valérie Corbeau bought the two baby goats at a village in southwest France, but after they and their significant number of offspring munched their way through her vineyards, they started on the neighbours. Now the herd, numbering 600, is destroying neighbours' winemakers' essential crops which produce Corbière wine – Madame Corbeau is facing at least three court cases over complaints of damage from vintners and charges related to goats being on the highways. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich.
0: Oh my goodness, Emma. (laughs) (laughs) we didn't do we didn't do a weather check because we like to compare the weather between uh, Zurich and London what's happening on one side of the channel versus the other how is London this morning Uh,
5: it's not bad actually yesterday we had an inkling of sunshine um but Emily I'm absolutely with you on this one my telephone from my phone from last year is telling me that I was growing flowers in my window boxes this time last year and we are just in such a funk here in the UK we're still encapsulated under that grey sky it's still cold at night it's still cold during the day i'm bored of my coats and i want to see my feet again i'm just fed i'm just fed up of being clothed in sort of woollies i know there's a delight in a good wool jumper but boy oh boy am i fed up
0: yeah, well, a, a little bit later, uh, we should say that we're going to be heading to Lisbon uh, to speak to the uh, to uh, David Diniz uh, at uh, Expresso uh, newspaper. And uh, well, as we were chatting, of course, uh, between London, I was in Alentejo uh, this time last week. It was absolutely gorgeous. It was 27, 28 degrees. We were talking about donkeys, uh, and it's yeah, it's it's yucky here. And uh, but again, I had to look at the weather. Up and down, I, I hate to say this, but up and down Portugal. I think it's like, you know, in the north, it's about 24 degrees. Um, in, in the south, I think it's going up to 31 today. Are glorious, we, glorious sunshine.
5: Are we contemplating a relocation project then? <laughs>
0: would, would this show sound different if, if we said you know, now crossing uh, to Lisbon for the news headlines with Emma Nelson? I don't would, know if would would, well, what, would, 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 would would listeners, would, would they be more excited? Would the tone of the news be different, Emma?
5: I suspect there might be a slightly sunnier outlook to what's happening. I don't know whether it would sound different, but I'd certainly feel different.
0: Listen, I'm I'm all for for change, uh, as as, you know, at least most of the time. And uh, we'll catch up with you towards uh, the end of the program. It's uh, just uh, going uh, 16:34. If you're listening uh, in Hong Kong, it's uh, 10:34 here in Zurich, and of course 9:34 back in London, also in Lisbon as well. We're going to head in a moment, but first uh, we're going to go eastbound uh, because our Balkans correspondent Guy Delaney is on the line. Uh, Good morning,
2: Guy. Morning, Tyler. Uh, I, I think
0: we find you in Ljubljana this morning
2: You do, I am in Ljubljana And i got to say, the weather isn't that great, to be honest with you We've had several days of rain on the trot uh, Which does rather start getting you down And we were just starting to enjoy having the sunshine in the garden Having a little sun trap there for our uh, morning and afternoon coffees uh, But it's uh, not been a great idea to do that over the past few days Unless you fancy going out in, a, in your Mac uh, Which I didn't particularly
0: no. Why don't we start with um, maybe the story that you teased at the top of the program, uh, which is this. Uh, you know, there's an interesting story around Slovenia because you know people might remember uh, a few years back uh, there was, Adria Airways. These kind mm. of happily painted aircraft. They were green and blue with a white fuselage. I don't. Know, there was something just about the words you know Adria on the side of an aircraft. It was very evocative. You felt, you know, a little bit sort of Habsburg Empire taking flight. At, yeah, it, 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 this association with sort of the, the, the east of Europe, but it's still a little bit close. And I can remember seeing their aircraft on the ground here at, at, at Zurich Airport. And, and it was always something very tempting. That's what's also interesting as well. When you see it an airline or a country with a, a national carrier, as they had at that time, it, yeah. it makes you want to go, um, even though I've still not been to visit you yet. But that, that needs to happen. Um, what's happening now with uh, Slovenia Incorporated's uh, aviation sector?
2: Well, you've given me a lump in my throat there, Tyler, thinking about Adria Airlines. I mean, it did, wasn't without its flaws, and that's putting it mildly, but it did connect Slovenia, which is a pretty small country, fewer than two million people, quite well with a lot of places in Europe, and importantly from the point of view of, of my job, around the former Yugoslavia, and that was important for lots of people's jobs because there's a large ex-Yugoslav diaspora in Slovenia um, who were relying on these flights to places like Sarajevo, Skopje, Pristina. All of that was very important, and Adria, just before the pandemic, uh, went bust. And it's gone and uh, the irony is if it had hung on for another couple of months it probably would have got a load of EU subsidies which would have seen it through and it might have gone bust a bit later but you know you never know they might have had a rethink and things might have gone gone better but now it's uh, in a we're in a situation where there's no Adria there's no national airline Uh, the Ljubljana airport opened up a brand spanking new terminal which looks very pretty and has lots of space in it uh, but basically it doesn't have any flights to serve it so it's now the quietest the but Airport in a capital in the European Union uh, is Ljubljana and they I was also looking at flights uh, which were served by other airlines flights to London uh, down about 50% compared to 2019 and th- That's in contrast to Zagreb where flights to London have gone up by 50% compared to 2019 And it just shows they're getting the strategy slightly wrong So now the the government is trying to throw money at it. They've got permission from the European Commission to uh, offer airlines subsidies on Key strategic routes, and uh, they're hoping that this will somehow revive the number of flights in and out of Ljubljana but we're in, we're in a fairly sort of busy part of the world from an aviation point of view because you know we've got Zagreb just down the road we've got uh, Trieste uh, just on the coast it's quite easy to get to Venice um, and if you're in the mood for a bit of a road trip or a train trip you can get to Vienna as well Um, so there are alternatives not as convenient for me personally but you can see why the airlines aren't necessarily piling in
0: and is there sort of a positive nature to this as well? Because you know, oftentimes there's you know, in, in any city there's going to be an anti-airport lobby, and people want, mm. uh, of course, uh, yeah, for for most people to get on the rails if they have to go short distances, or they shouldn't fly at all, etc. So is there, you know, is there this feeling in Slovenia? Oh, this is not a bad thing. Actually, this is a badge of honor uh, that we've got the quietest airport in the EU. Or is, the, or is <laughs> there, the sense that actually, no, I really would like to get to Heraklion on my on my holidays direct, nonstop,
2: please. Yeah, I've heard literally nobody say that they're happy that we don't have enough flights out of Ljubljana. Literally nobody is saying that. And I think that's also a reflection on what the alternatives are in terms of getting around. I mean, I'll just give you an example. I was trying the other day, and this isn't, a, this isn't something I could ever have done on an aeroplane, but I was uh, the other day in Istria in Croatia, um, which should be in an hour and a half's drive, and it took three hours coming back because of uh, jams on on the motorways and that's that's depressingly frequent if you're coming back um, from the coast into Ljubljana on the motorway. All the time uh, that road is absolutely packed and there are frequent hold-ups on it so that's not ideal. You'd like to go by the train but the trains can be very slow as well and certain destinations they just don't serve. Slovenian Railways has invested a lot of money in new rolling stock, Swiss rolling stock, the uh, Stadler trains, the the Kiss and Flirt trains, um, which should be improving speeds to places like Zagreb, uh, because at the moment it takes about two and a half hours if you're lucky to Zagreb. On the train, but the couple of things are just happening there which could speed it up. Firstly, they got permission to run these new trains on the Croatian rails and that should be happening soon. And secondly, um, because Croatia has joined the Schengen area, those border checks, though they were still there when I last went on a train to Zagreb a few weeks ago. They should theoretically have evaporated now because they've scrapped the border checks at uh, the airports as of the end of March. So hopefully that's going to improve the speed as well. And then we'll be looking at if everybody gets their act together, and this requires cooperation from more than one country, uh, we could be looking at a much faster rail services through the region.
0: I, I want to bring uh, both uh, Emily and, and, and Fabian in on this because at the you know, at the top of the show we we're talking about, of course, the devi- divisive nature, of course, of nuclear energy and, and aviation is also interesting. I mean, Emily, if I think, okay, you're a Finn, and you know, part of you'd almost say sort of Finland's sort of you know, foreign policy is is also to have a very strong airport, to have a strong national airline. The government is you know is is of course one hundred percent behind it, They're the biggest shareholder as well, and and they see that this is you know, this is not just an economic story for them, but it's also about you know. Can Connecting Finland, you could almost say Finnish design, Finnish values to the world uh, as well. And I don't think they would be very excited in Finland if they, you know, and it's been been a challenge, obviously, with closed Russian airspace as well. But, you know, they're very proud of the fact as well that they have this connective nature for the world.
1: Absolutely and that's why you see big Finnish brands from Marimekko to Itala um, to Fazer having uh, partnerships with Finnair so they can kind of showcase the best of Finnish design and and, and products on air um, on, on, on Finnair flights. Absolutely it's a source of pride but it's also a very practical concern. So I actually next summer I've decided to try to make my way as close to Finland as possible without hopping on a plane and it will take me a couple of days to first go to Berlin Berlin by train then to Copenhagen then to Stockholm and then hop on a ferry um, across the sea to Finland so again from a very geographical point of view Finland absolutely needs a national air carrier to make sure that Finland is well serviced of course in the hopes that um, come kind of two decades from now uh, it'll be more carbon neutral uh, way of traveling and I think that's the goal uh, but in the interim that's an, uh, unfortunately the case but for Country like Finland, we just not geographically, and and then with the, the way things are with Russia now, um, you cannot necessarily take a train to St. Petersburg and try to get to
0: Europe from there either. Well, I mean, Fabian, it's not your patch uh, necessarily, um, because you're doing international. But from a Handelszeitung Zeitung uh, point of view, from the newspapers' perspective, you know, you are covering uh, you know, global economy, Swiss economy uh, as well, and this city also has, you know, occasionally a complicated relationship with its airport. Uh, but but it sort of, it seems. It seems like that's dying down a little bit. It seems like runways will be extended now. And do you get a sense that maybe the moment uh, of flight shaming, etc., has also three three years of people realizing that it's maybe not so great when you can't... Go and see your relatives in Australia has died down. Is the sentiment changing a bit? Do you think?
3: Exactly. I think it's it's exactly the way you're describing. Like with the pandemic and with the climate movement um, emerging right before the pandemic, I think flight shaming became like the huge topic, and people were like rather would rather um, cut it down. But now, like after the pandemic, people want to travel again. Like we see the numbers rising, um, and I think people realized, or like the the general view on the topic is that it's more like a systemic problem which we should um yeah which we should solve by for example um pushing e-fuels pushing uh pushing of course trains but as this will not be um able to to be implemented from like Tomorrow, of course, it will like the next couple of years. I think we will rather see like a rise of like airports and like flights, destinations, etc.
0: Yeah, indeed. Um, g- uh, maybe just uh, staying on the travel theme, um, Guy, a uh, very interesting story out of Croatia um, and a reliance or increasing reliance on on Asian staff, uh, which which maybe and you know would probably be a little bit of a surprise for people with their front desk experience uh, when they're when they're in a hotel in the country.
2: I think a lot of people would be surprised about this one, Croatia every summer complains that it doesn't have enough seasonal workers, and it's, it's often sort of couched as um, a, a way of criticising the Croatian youth, almost saying, oh my goodness, these people, they, they, they don't know how good they've got it, they don't want to do the summer jobs uh, on the seaside to earn a bit of extra money, they've, they've, they must uh, be really lazy or really soft or really spoiled, so that's the way it's usually being couched. But I think it's just an ab- absolute lack of people, and lack of people who want to do the jobs for the wages on offer and they've been casting their net wider and wider in Croatia for the the seasonal staff so up until now we've seen people coming in mainly from Serbia from North Macedonia ex Yugoslavia in other words um, but they, they can't even fulfill it with those people because those people are finding better offers elsewhere in Europe and on the cruise ships so now we're seeing um, permits being allocated to workers from Nepal from Philippines and from India and that's going to be as you say the the, the face of the front desk this summer in Croatia, uh, or service staff, or people in the kitchen—it's going to be much more likely it's people from Asia who are going to be uh, looking after you uh, in your Croatian seaside resorts this summer.
0: Just before we go, I'm going to give you a choice of, of two stories um, in uh, in 90 seconds or less. Uh, we can talk uh-huh. about uh, Serbia uh, and uh, and Ukraine arms and all of the shenanigans that go around with with that, uh, or do we stay in uh, in Croatia with some uh, yeah fascism penalties?
2: Well, I can do the Croatian fascism penalty very briefly. There's an odd fetish for making an old Nazi-era salute in Croatia. That will now be punished uh, with a fine of €4,000. This is a sort of conflation of nationalism with deliberate offence to one's neighbours. So penalties for that are going up. But I think the interesting one, more internationally, is what's going on with Serbia and its arms sales. Serbia's a big arms producer. It's been suggested in these leaked US diplomatic documents that Serbia has been and is willing to sell arms to Ukraine to, so that you can, Ukraine can defend itself against the invasion of Russia. And of course, Serbia is a big ally of Russia. And uh, it says that uh, it has not and will not sell arms to either side in the conflict. But it does admit, and this is quite curious, that if it sells arms to third parties, of course, it is highly possible that these arms may end up on the battlefields in Ukraine.
0: Interesting, uh, maybe interesting relationship to uh, Switzerland and and its tanks uh, as well. Uh, Guy Delany, our uh, correspondent uh, in the Balkans, joining us from Ljubljana this morning. Thank you very much for that. It's uh, just gone 10.46 here in Zurich. We're going away for a short, short break. When we come back, we're heading to Lisbon.
2: Spain is the land of sun, sea and sangria, and each visitor jets off to its sunny beaches and vibrant cities for a dose of that Spanish Buena Vida. Monocle's newest handbook to Spain is on shelves now, where we explore the best places to eat, shop, stay, and wander in this colorful country. Inside, we check in with the hoteliers offering luxury seaside stays and urban getaways, local creatives weaving the old with the new, and leading chefs plating up exciting new dishes. For those hoping to put down roots, this handbook also highlights the perfect neighborhoods for you to call home and gets suggestions from the entrepreneurs who have already taken the plunge. Head to monocle.com shop to order your copy of Spain, the Monocle Handbook, today.
0: you're back with Monocle on Sunday with me Tyler Berle, also here with uh, Fabian Kinzelman of the Handelszeitung and uh, also with uh, Emily Isahau also here uh, from ETH from their peace mediation program Uh, we are heading to Lisbon now uh, to speak to the deputy editor uh, of Expresso newspaper uh, David uh, Diniz is on the line and for those of you who don't know Expresso we could probably sort of say a little bit like uh, Die Zeit uh, a weekly uh, title uh, in uh, in Portugal a newspaper of record with a fantastic supplement uh, as well, and I have to say, uh, David, I was diving into uh, the pages of your supplement uh, last weekend, and and, and a very fine journal that uh, that you have, uh, Bom Dia thank you bondia thank you <laughs> uh, tell me uh, there's there's a plethora of things that we could cover uh, out of uh, out of portugal at the moment you've said a couple of stories our way but maybe you just heard going into this we we're talking a lot about uh, aviation and you can't open up whether, whether it's your pages or go on to the Expresso website or look at uh, of course uh, any any other news outlet and and tap uh, tap uh, the national carrier uh, of, uh, of of portugal uh, is it seems to be the lead story everywhere uh, caught Caught in scandal, uh, in a bit of a a more than a bit of a political and economic uh, crisis right now. Maybe just uh, very short, briefly uh, for for our listeners around the world. uh, What is the problem with uh, TAP at the moment?
6: Well, uh, as you said, Tyler, and thank you for for the invitation for your program. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, The top is um, uh, the Portuguese public airline and it's public uh, once again since the actual prime minister came to power seven years ago. So what happened after that was since the, 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 the company was public again, uh, and when the pandemic came, the Portuguese government had to put 3 billion, more than that, actually, on the public company. So uh, to make sure it was still up, uh, the government had to, um, to request the, to, the, uh, to the public, to everyone who pays taxes, to, to build up the company once again. So by now, what we have seen is the parliament has put up a, a commission uh, to investigate how the company was uh, was managed and how the government uh, stood up to that to that new uh, kind of business, and and what we've been seeing in the last three weeks is that uh, the the government was actually um, on board, commanding all the stuff in the company. And that's kind of weird nowadays. So um, the, by now, the, the political parties on the opposition uh, are claiming to the president that the government should go down, even though it has um, an absolute majority uh, commanding the country. So it's kind of a tricky business. Uh, the company is really uh, is really big, but when you look at the polls most of the, the most of the country actually don't uh, doesn't want the, the company to be public and and the opposition is taking advantage of it
0: it, it's it's interesting as well because we were saying just as you as you heard going into this you know Finland is a very different uh, situation uh, where there is probably enormous uh, public support I think for for the airline and I'm just looking at my colleague Emily here that you know I think Finns are probably proud that the government is, is there to support it see it through hard times uh, of course with Russian airspace closed correct?
1: Absolutely and it's happened in the past that the government has had to step in and quite strongly support the airline so
0: definitely. Interesting um, and, and I guess off the back of this uh, David as well We, are, we uh, I also saw a story the other day that now we we see other major global carriers of, uh, and groups of obviously circling. So, of course, they're, they're looking to offload uh, the airline uh, discussion that, of course, uh, IAG, the, the, the parent company behind Iberia and, and British Airways, uh, one potential suitor, also Air France, KLM looking at it, and also Lufthansa uh, uh, as, as well. Is there any sort of sentiment uh, from, a, from a Portuguese perspective as to who they would like to be the new owner?
6: Well, that's, that's another twist on the story, because if the government, the, 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 the Portuguese prime minister, uh, came up to power seven years ago and made the company public, it was private uh, and it was in, a, uh, in Brazilian hands, by the way. Um, right now, the, the, the same prime minister is telling everyone that he, he will go and private the, the company once again. So, um, Iberia, you're right, Iberia and British Airways are on the race. Um, The major problem uh, from a, a Portuguese perspective, the major problem with Iberia would be that we might lose um uh the scale if if we sell it to Iberia which is a spanish company right by us by, by our side so the fear is they might get into lisbon and and make the the portuguese airports and the company um a, a smaller company dependent on uh, madrid and madrid airport that is right next to us so that's a uh, that could be a problem uh, not not for uh, other companies in in Europe, Uh, I may say that there is some support on the on the opposition parties for sale that could be for a German, uh, German company, so to say, Um, but uh, on the Spanish side, there is some historical um, uh, dispute with Spain. So it might be complicated for that also.
0: Yeah, I think I think we've noticed the, the complicated relationship between Portugal and Spain uh, over the centuries. And, and also, just before we, we move on to other things, it is interesting. You know, we were talking a little bit earlier about the quiet, the quietest airport, uh, uh, which uh, in, in a European capital, and of course that being uh, Ljubljana. Not the same situation uh, in in Lisbon. You know, Portela is bursting at the seams. I mean, it's at over capacity uh, right now. And obviously, also you've got a big discussion in the country right now about, okay, is there going to be a completely new? Airport airport? Is there going to be a second airport uh, for the city as well? So it sort of seems that aviation is actually dominating a lot of the uh, the public and government discourse right now.
6: Jesus, Tyler, you wouldn't know. Uh, the, the discussion for the new Lisbon International Airport has come by for the latest 60 years. So even even before the revolution, we were talking about it, and we're still talking about it, and there's still no decision. Uh, but uh, nowadays there is a working group uh, uh, making an uh, evaluation about the possibilities for the location of the new airport and if the actual uh, airport in Lisbon still uh, will be on the same place with another airport or not. So it's a difficult uh, discussion. Uh, the, the, the schedule for that evaluation is scheduled for until the end of this year. So we might get a solution um, in the beginning of the next year, but I wouldn't promise that because of the, the timeline that we've seen for the last decade.
0: Okay, so it's still going to be buses to to planes. Uh, I think probably for the foreseeable future, uh, out of uh, yeah, out of Delgado uh, Airport. Anyway, just uh, just before we go uh, very quickly, one of the dominating themes, even in discussion, and and it's not just a, it's not just a Lisbon story and or a Portugal story. It's a story in in many ways, all over Europe, but certainly in cities where you have an overinflated property market, uh, and of course, Portugal has some of the lowest wages in the EU, but. Uh, rental prices and housing prices are still off the charts everyone said it was going to cool down a little bit but uh, this is really not not the case and sort of the gap seems to be spreading and, and a story that of course express has been falling very closely
6: absolutely well to to give you a picture of that uh in the latest six years i think it that that's in six years uh, the prices have almost duplicated in portugal the housing prices so that's how huge the problem got to to be here in portugal and we with the actual crisis in, with the uh, the the prices coming up so the inflation uh, the the portuguese people will most most surely be um really, really uh, terrified about that. It's impossible to buy a house in, in Lisbon for a Portuguese guy actually right now. So m- most of the sales are, are going for foreigners, uh, w- which are pretty much welcome, but it, it's still a problem for uh, Portuguese citizens. So the the government finally, after seven years, put up some legislation uh, for trying to, to uh, make things a little bit uh, better. Uh, but it's quite um, uh, it, it's not a diff- uh, uh, an easy solution so the, the, it will be a, a, a discussion uh, theme for the next next months in the parliament um, there are some uh, the government's trying some hard uh, options are uh, over there so trying to Pick up some uh, empty houses for the state to make sure that the state tries to rent them for for people who need it. Uh, but at, uh, once again, uh, the opposition didn't like that. It's kind of a tricky thing to get uh, to to get by private. Uh, um, owners and get the houses for the state so uh I won't be- I wouldn't believe that the the, propo- the proposition will stay the same uh, but uh well let's see what goes by in the next 2 or 3 months
0: Indeed. Uh, David Diniz, uh, deputy editor of Expresso uh, in, uh, in Lisbon for us uh, this morning. Uh, obrigado. Thank you very, very uh, much uh, for that. Uh, we're just coming to the end of the program. Uh, just uh, looking ahead a little bit, Fabian, uh, any uh, international travel for you coming up? Any uh, heading to Shangri-La for the security summit uh, or anything coming up for you?
3: I'm actually going to Italy as well this week. Uh, I'm going to Perugia. So I won't have so to- no,
0: Salone, So Yes. No.
3: And I won't have to take the plane. Because like the train is so is much- going
0: is going to yeah. get you there. Uh, focus on Sudan uh, for you this week, uh, Emily. Of course, you're in peace mediation, watching all of the story. Uh, no, absolutely. I've been uh, following the news, and and I was just watching the
1: TV monitors here. I mean, I think we're still trying to understand what's happening. I think two things are clear. One, it is a battle between uh, two former. Uh, kind of uh, partners, uh, current foes, um, so you do have to solve that very elite level problem. But I think that's just um, the first step. The bigger issue is to look at how to transition from a highly militarized government uh, to something a bit more democratic. So the UN, AU,
0: Arab League will have their hands full. Indeed, and uh, maybe a project for your students uh, as well. <laughs> uh, Fabian Kinzel and uh, Emily so also Andrew Tuck and Emma Nelson, thank you very, very much. Also Guy Delaney in Ljubljana this morning uh, and David Dennis from Expresso in Lisbon. Our producers today, Desiree Bendley and Emma Centre studio manager in Zurich, Desiree Bendley. And also Steph Chungu is back in London. I'm Tyler Riley monocle on Sunday. is back next week. Goodbye.